0: Hello, welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, the Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and with me today is Donald McCauley, Professor of uh, Public Health and Primary Care in Ireland, but one of our associate editors. And we're discussing the March 17th print issue of the journal. A lot of it is about resident duty hours. Of course, in, in, in my day, in my day, Donald's day too, actually, we all worked very, very long hours. But the debate has moved on from the actual number of hours that doctors work, and in many Western countries, those hours are restricted. The focus now is on the uh, length of the shift. So within a 50-, 60-, or 80-hour week, how long should those shifts be? 24, 16, 12 hours, and does it make a difference? We've got a randomised control trial ad- addressing just that topic.
1: Donald, what did they find? Well, what they find, in fact, was that the length of the shift didn't really matter in terms of their primary outcome. The primary outcome was sleepiness, and they find no difference in the sleepiness. Well,
0: there was, uh, there was daytime sleepiness and nighttime sleepiness, wasn't there? There yeah. so, certainly no difference in the daytime, but was, wasn't there just a subtle change difference in the nighttime sleepiness?
1: There was, but i don 't think it really reached statistical significance I, I think, in terms of of the overall primary outcome in this context there was there was no significant finding the The other aspect that was interesting was in terms of of patient safety and adverse events. And although this study wasn't really powered to to identify these adverse events, they did find what they describe as a signal. Now again, it's not statistically significant, but it does raise our awareness of the possibility that some of these shifts may be slightly higher risk than others, and it just raises our awareness.
0: The thing was there that it was the the shorter shift um, seemed to be slightly more problematic. And looking at the way they organised the work, you could see why that might be, because although the residents' uh, duty hours were changed, none of the other staff's duty hours or or rotors were changed at all. So, in fact, the the, uh, residents with the 12-hour shifts had more complicated handovers and difficulty uh, fitting with the schedules of the uh, other staff. So I think the authors were, were suggesting that Part of the problem might have been the handover, and to address this we needed to train residents more in the skills of of handover so that uh, the ball wasn't dropped between patients.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think in the discussion they described the sign-over as being the critical time and that's really the thing, that's the quality of the sign-over that they thought may influence the adverse events. But actually, John, there was something that really caught my attention in this paper and I guess it resonates with what you and I maybe experienced when we did very long hours and that was when they looked at the burnout symptoms. Now, they didn't find any difference in the burnout symptoms between these three groups but looking at the overall rate, it was really quite striking, the feeling of burnout and the feeling of isolation that the staff yes, had. Yes, high, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what they described was emotional exhaustion in 56% of the residents, depersonalisation in 59%. And, you know, the lack of personal accomplishment in 39%. And I think that's a very important issue. It's not something that they looked at specifically to look at differences in this particular study. But I think generally in terms of residents' health, I think that's important. And I was really struck in the introduction to this paper how Canada takes particularly good attention to doctors' health and the the health of residents. I think there was a conference in September, John, I think you were at. Yes,
0: I mean, each year Canada has a physician's health conference and then every other year it's it's an international conference and I was at the international conference in London last year. But you're right, I think Canada um, is taking the lead on well, trying to make sure that doctors are able to look after themselves as well as looking after others. So, both of the, uh, the, both the research and the commentary that we have on on this topic uh, have got podcasts linked to them uh, interviews with the authors so uh, we 're gearing up our podcasts a bit, and so uh, there 's more to listen to on this topic. Two other bits of research, both of which are again quite interesting. There seems to be a, a better way of doing cognitive assessments for people from different populations. So of course, we're all familiar with the uh, MMSE, the Mini Mental State Examination. But for those who uh, can't follow the language, so would be, find it difficult because of their background to say no ifs, no buts, then uh, this uh, uh, tool, the Roland Universal Dementia Assessment Scale, the RUDAS, appears to come out quite well and translates better over in, into other languages and other cultures. The other piece of research, Donald, I think you actually interviewed the author, didn't you? This was about chest pain. Tell us about that and uh, what struck you.
1: Yeah, I mean, this I, I had a chat with Dennis Cole and they looked at the outcomes on 57,000 patients over six years. And what they found was that patients were less likely to be seen by a primary care doc or a cardiologist if they had known cardiac or cerebrovascular condition, even when they had had an accident and emergency with chest pain.
0: Yes, th- this was patients with chest pain who'd uh, been in hospital and then discharged, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was quite a paradox that patients who were at higher risk of adverse events were less likely to have follow-up. In this context, 25% had no follow-up, 69 um, percent were seen by a primary care physician 17 percent by a cardiologist but what determined whether you were going to be seen by a doctor after discharge from accident emergency well the primary and the, the factor that really stands out and stands out particularly in the figure is that a previous visit to a primary care doctor was associated with the highest odds of follow-up about six times the confidence intervals were between 5.91 and 7 so you know you were six times more likely to be followed up if you had a previous visit to a primary care doc i mean i can
0: i can understand that donald because um i I find it very difficult to get a doctor when i first arrived here in canada and it's a common experience that there's really quite a sort of a, a, a waiting list or jostling for a primary care physician and if you've not got a primary care physician, you go to hospital with chest pain and you come out, it's, it's really quite a hassle to then try and find someone. And a walk-in clinic isn't, isn't necessarily everybody's cup of tea. So um, I'm kind of not surprised. And um, sadly, as the public health physician in me is also not surprised, that the people who need care most tend to be the ones who don't get it.
1: Yeah, in the paper, Dennis describes a phenomenon which I thought was very interesting. And his term for it was the treatment risk paradox. And that's where he said that lower rates of treatments with patients who are at higher risk of adverse events. And I thought that was fascinating because empirically we would expect that those at higher risk with greater comorbidities would be more likely to be followed up. But in fact, this is not the case. And I think this is something worth looking at again in the future.
0: I mean, it uh, doesn't make sense, does it? It was uh, Julian Tudor Hart who uh, coined the inverse care law, which seemed to be one of the uh, precursors to this one. So, lots of research and, again, some uh, interesting practice articles. Uh, a review here t- talking about kernicterus, or at least trying to prevent kernicterus in the uh, newborn, because uh, many babies go yellow, but uh, which are the ones that are really at risk of becoming quite ill? So, really quite a-, a practical clinical review, what to look for, how to prevent it. And there's a take-home message there for family docs like you and me, isn't there, Donald?
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought this was very interesting because as mums stay in hospital for shorter and shorter periods of time, we're likely to see more and more babies discharged from hospital in the early stages. And of course, jaundice doesn't develop for a couple of days. But this was review was very helpful, particularly to my understanding of carnictors of and the importance of neonatal jaundice. And the key thing is that, of course, jaundice really, if you look at the early stage and test for bilirubin level, you can put that level on a normogram and predict which patients or which children are likely to develop uh, raised bilirubin. I thought that was very interesting and very helpful.
0: So you can get some degree of warning then before it happens?
1: You can, and this seems to be the key thing and the most important thing to look at. But there are some fascinating aspects of it, and one of the things that interested me was that those babies who were most likely to get high bilirubin with those who were breastfed but actually breastfed unsuccessfully well what's going on there it's really it's under nutrition is the problem all right but, yeah and I had, in the, in this review there's there's a, a a suggestion which could be a little bit controversial and that is suggested in those children who are breastfed firstly of course the priority is to try and improve the quality of breastfeeding but perhaps in those children who are breastfed unsuccessfully and developing jaundice, perhaps formula feeding would be appropriate. Now, I know many of the breastfeeding advocates would throw up their hands in horror at that. But actually, it seems a very practical and reasonable approach.
0: And of course, this would be for babies who are running into trouble, babies that are going it is, yeah. This is not, not for, for for babies who are otherwise well. No. no. Yeah. Well, from one end of the spectrum to the other, a Decisions article on uh, sleepless nights, 64-year-old man uh, getting up at night to, to pee. I'm not 64, but um, I was uh, reassured to see that uh, I don't fall into any kind of pathological category. It's just I drink too much tea before I go to bed at night. But this is quite a, a, a frequent sort of um, problem, pardon the pun, uh, in primary care. Did you find this um, a sort of a helpful discussion for uh, your practice, Donald?
1: John, I thought, I, I thought this was a super piece um, well, and I think this is an issue that does cause people anxiety. For example, there's a huge amount of publicity now about prostate cancer and of course, uh, urinary frequency is one of the things that, that worries men when they get older and they do address this in, in the paper and they address the issues related to, to prostate screening as well. So I thought this was a very sensible, useful, practical piece for, for the GP to read.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I've, I found it useful and, as I said, reassuring. One that I think you enjoyed, this was um, right atrial mass in a 22-year-old woman with molar pregnancy. One of the ways that I survived um, through uh, medical school was to uh, switch off when there was the really extraordinarily rare things that I thought, I'm never going to see one of those. Have you ever seen a a, a woman with a molar pregnancy with a right atrial mass,
1: Donald? Why did you find this interesting? not not with a right atrial mass, but I I have seen a a woman with a molar pregnancy. And I was interested because this is a young woman with a a malignant type disease.
0: Yeah, and a seriously malignant disease.
1: Yeah, and I find this very interesting from two points of view. Firstly, because of a molar pregnancy and in a young woman, and because I had seen a patient with a molar pregnancy, it certainly resonated with me. But also, I find it very interesting from the sort of medical, intellectual challenge perspective in in the sort of grand rounds quiz. So you have this young woman with this atrial mass. What could it be? And it brings you through the step-by-step on what's your call. And starting off, they look at what are the five possibilities. It could it be a primary cardiac tumour, could it be a metastatic tumour, could it be infective endocarditis, could it be a thrombus, uh, could it be an anatomical variant? So you're you're faced with these possibilities, and it really gets the grey cells churning around to think about what the p- possibilities are. Now I'll not give the answer away because it it really is quite fun going through this it's not the kind of thing you see every day but certainly from a medical point of view it really made me think
0: yeah i quite like watching morse for that uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what else have we got in in the journal
1: there's yeah. a fascinating thing cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome i, I, I had never heard of that this is people who abuse cannabis yeah. they really abuse it on a regular and frequent basis and they develop cyclical vomiting with obviously nausea and abdominal pain. Now the cyclical vomiting without any sort of other reason for it is strange enough on its own. But actually part of the syndrome is that they take lots of hot baths and showers. I've absolutely no idea how the two are related, but this is part of the syndrome. And, of course, the only solution to this is to stop the abuse of cannabis. But it's a most unusual combination of, of symptoms and um, a condition I'd never really heard of before.
0: No, I hadn't. So so actually, it's not the withdrawal of cannabis, but it's uh, it's associated with, with the long-term use of cannabis
1: then. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And the only solution is to, to, stop, to stop the use of cannabis. Yeah. Nice picture in the clinical <coughs> images of tattoos. And yes, I mean,
0: we, we've all heard of the Kerbner phenomenon, of course, some kind of skin rash coming up in, uh, in a site of injury or trauma. But what was different about this one was it was in a tattoo that had been done some time previously, 18 months previously, I think.
1: This was a Kerbner phenomenon, so it came up on multiple small lumps mm-hmm. and bumps.
0: The uh, xanthomas, uh, yeah. hypercholesterolemia.
1: One of the things that's related to this uh, is we get quite a few pictures of tattoos, and we get pictures of tattoos with scarring and with reaction to the dyes. But I also came across this business of reaction to henna tattoos. And we often think of henna tattoos as being simple, easy, and they disappear over time. But actually, you can get an allergic reaction to henna tattoos oh, as well. Right. And you, we, we in the CMAJ have published a couple of pieces in this. We've published a piece where. You can have keloid scars following the reaction to a henna tattoo. And henna colouring in hair products also can cause a reaction. And we've had a, a number of cases where people have had a reaction to hair dye following previous reaction to henna tattoos. So it's all added up to the tattoo story and the different components of tattoos. So even the seemingly harmless tattoos can be quite harmful.
0: Yeah, and I mean you've pointed out, Donald, uh, that um, we have those regular clinical images. There's there's a lot of them on the website, and quite a useful um, resource there for uh, revising um, clinical signs. And also, I believe we've just started uh, putting some of the interesting pictures up on uh, on a Pinterest page, CMAJ Pinterest page. On the back page, the uh, digestive section. Um, I was quite shocked, really, by the by the news that fifteen children in Syria. Had died of measles vaccination. Nothing wrong with the vaccination at all. It's just that uh, the vaccine had been mixed with a uh, neuromuscular blocking agent. So presumably the kids were injected and died uh, a few minutes or hours later from um, apnea. The tragedy there is is to put uh, such a dangerous compound in with you know with a vaccination. So, of course, the, 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 the authors of the blog are, are calling for better labelling of products. It's one of those things that seems to be just sort of um, common sense and what, why on earth do we do this? Uh, and, and yet we do. I don't know what the solution is. Yeah,
1: I mean, if we do come across these errors from time to time. This was clearly a packing error instead of the intended diluent. This neuromuscular blocking agent put in similar packs together in the distribution center. But we, we do come across from time to time mistakes because products are in similar bottles or boxes and people can make an error like that. You know, we could have done without another story about measles vaccination. I mean, really, it's difficult enough now with the vaccination levels and the vaccination levels falling. And, of course, we've had these um, recent outbreaks of measles in Canada and North America. Yeah, a tragic story
0: and, and one that I hope will uh, prompt action of some kind. Slightly more optimistic uh, was was that blog about, is there anything we can do for homeless people? Well, yes, it appears there is.
1: Yeah, I, I like that blog by Richard Doan from Inner City Health Associates. And what he says is that psychiatric admissions of adequate duration can play a role in helping a homeless person get off the streets. We know that many homeless people have psychological, psychiatric problems indeed. And what he describes is their experience of clients who have a psychotic illness, because when they're admitted to hospital, they're more likely to be looked after and to secure housing after discharge. Really, it is important to, to treat homeless people when they have illnesses, and even if they have psychiatric or psychotic illnesses, it is very useful to have an admission hospital, even if only on a temporary basis.
0: I mean, I know in, in the emergency department, it's really quite tempting to sort of think, oh, they're just homeless. But uh, this is quite positive. You can actually do something about it. And it's not just tucking them up for bed and breakfast for the night. This is, this is actually putting them in the uh, way of services that will help them get their lives together again so an optimistic note to end on that was the march the 17th edition of cmaj with its usual mix of research and practice and kicking off uh, with an editorial on climate change by one of our deputy editors kirsten patrick this has been john fletcher and uh, donald mccauley thank you